In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. So God willing, today we're going to continue where we left off last time. We had uh, finished uh, Genesis, uh, we did the last chapter, and we had started the beginning of 2 Corinthians, um, the first chapter. So I'm going to start at the beginning again of 2 Corinthians, to just kind of recap quickly um, what we covered, um, and then kind of dive into uh, the, new, the new stuff um, for this week. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. So it starts out, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in all Achaia. So we had said that this is the second epistle, right, that St. Paul is sending to the Corinthians. He visited them the first time, uh, or, or sorry, he wrote to them the first time uh, about several issues that were happening in the church. Does somebody remember some of those issues uh, that were happening from uh, 1 Corinthians? A lot of them are still addressed in, in, in the second uh, epistle as well. Yeah. Uh, was it where, like, they thought that he was, like, abiding by something different than, like, the appearance of the Son and all the rest of the disciples? So one of the issues was the factions, right? And um, there was different people that kind of uh, were following Paul, other people following Peter, other people following Apollos. And essentially, they considered that every preacher, uh, every apostle who came to them was kind of like their own thing, right? And so uh, that was definitely one of the things that was an issue in the Corinthian church that St. Paul addressed. What else? Uh, 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 if I remember a church that he sent his friend with, with uh, his wife. Yeah, his stepmother, right? Yeah. So um, very good. So there was a specific man who had committed a sin um, essentially of marrying his stepmother. And uh, this is something that St. Paul condemned in the first epistle. And actually he excommunicated the man, right? And he told the church to put him out, right? Not, not, not because he was rejecting him, but because he wanted him to repent. And actually this is one of the things that, God willing, we're going to get to mentioning what happened to this man today um, uh, in, in what we're studying. Good. Uh, what, what else was the issue in, in the Corinthian church? Uh, that wasn't, no, because circumcision is an issue among the Jews, right? Because the Jews were the ones that were, were, were pushing the idea, um, the Judaizers, that uh, circumcision was necessary for salvation, even for the Gentiles, right? So that they were wanting to push the Gentiles to be circumcised. But here, the Corinthians, this is in Greece. So these are already Gentiles. They have no connection or history to circumcision. There isn't anything about that that they would be practicing or, yeah. Yeah. So that, that is a generally an issue that was, uh, again, with the Jews discussing what should happen to the Gentiles, right? So that was in Acts chapter 15, where the uh, apostles met and decided that um, they should, that the Gentiles should not uh, eat meat sacrificed to idols and that they don't need to be circumcised. Uh, uh, but so, so that law applies to the Corinthians, but that really wasn't. Uh, 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 sorry, sorry. That was something that was discussed in terms of uh, what is um, what is what is what is like the law of love, right? So yes, that was that was addressed. It, it wasn't that he was necessarily like making a stance on the idea of the eating the meat sacrificed to idols was wrong, but he was saying that if your weaker brother sees that uh, eating meat sacrificed to idols is wrong 
then it's something that we should not be promoting or be doing, doing in front of them in order to not to be a stumbling block to them. Yes, that was in chapter eight, I believe. False prophets, right? People coming and teaching false things, right? And how to, to, to beware of them. The other point that he mentioned had to do with um, uh, the spiritual gifts, right? In, uh, in chapter 12, 1 Corinthians 12, he spoke at length about the spiritual gifts. And one of the problems that the Corinthians had is that they were uh, boasting and boasting and bragging about the gifts that they had received. And they were kind of like showing off. And one of the specific gifts that they were uh, bragging about was the speaking of tongues, okay? Speaking in tongues. So a lot of a lot of the similar kind of uh, points will be mentioned uh, here in the second uh, uh, epistle, but it is a uh, it is a lighter tone. It's not as as firm. Uh, it's 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 not as rebuking. Uh, it focuses a lot more on like the pastoral care um, for the people. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us all, uh, comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. We spoke about how in order for us to be able to show comfort to others in their struggles, then we also have to have had already an experience where we receive comfort from God in our own tribulation. And it is through this experience that we are able then to share this with other people. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Now, if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. So who is it when St. Paul is referring to we? Who is we? The apostles, right? The people who are serving the Corinthians. He's saying we are afflicted because of all of the struggles that we go through in our ministry and the traveling and the persecution and the hunger. And, and like, you know, when St. Paul speaks at length about all of the, the struggles that he experienced in his, in his uh, ministry, all this affliction, right, is for the salvation of those people whom he is going to preach to. Okay. And if we are comforted, right, if we receive joy and comfort, it is again for your comfort. It is for your consolation and salvation. So he's he's defending the idea that everything that he does is for the sake of the salvation of the people. And our hope for you is steadfast because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will partake of the consolation. You know, when, when we partake of the sufferings of Christ, we partake also of the benefits of his suffering. We partake of the comfort of the Holy Spirit working in us. And when the people were to participate with St. Paul in his sufferings, they also would partake of the consolation that would come as a result. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure above strength, so that we despaired even of life. He's speaking about some of the things that happened to him in his ministry when he was in the region of Asia. This could be very well referring to his time that he spent in Ephesus that we read about in the book of Acts, where he experienced all kinds of suffering. So he's saying, we want you to be aware of the kinds of sufferings that we are experiencing for your sake. Yes, we have the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. At what point do we reach to where we are really actively thinking that 
God is the one who raises the dead and that we are in need of him. We are in need of this God who raises the dead. It is when we have the sentence of death, right? We have the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. The person who believes that they have the sentence of death is the person who cares about the one who can raise from the dead. You know, the person, think about like a, 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 an inmate, a prisoner who is on death row. Before even getting on death row, he might not have even known who the name of the governor was, right? But now that he is on death row, who is the person who can pardon him and, and, and commute his sentence? It is the governor. So we become very mindful of the Lord, of the judge, of the creator, of the master, of the giver of life, of the one who resurrects, once we realize that we have the sentence of death. And this sentence of death can mean more than one thing for us. It can mean the, 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 the physical death, right? Uh, you know, that's why you find maybe that the community of the older people tend to have more faith than the younger. Because as younger, maybe we feel like, well, we have our whole life ahead of us. This isn't really something I need to pay attention to. I don't like a bunch of rules. I just want to live my life. I want to enjoy my time. And I'm not really thinking at all about my eternity. I'm not thinking about the end of my life because my life still seems very long. I don't really have that feeling from day to day, like my life is short. My life is going to end soon and so on. So because we are not really mindful of the end of our life, we are not thinking so much about the one who is in control of that. We are not thinking so much about the one who resurrects us from such a death, okay? Also, in the spiritual sense, right, the sentence of death spiritually means that without the Lord, we are sentenced to eternal separation from God. But with the Lord, we have eternal reunification with God. So if I am not mindful of this spiritual death that has entered into me through uh, sin, okay, then I will not be mindful of the, of the means of life, right? Like in the liturgy, when we say that Christ taught us the ways of salvation, he taught us the ways of salvation. Who is going to care about the ways of salvation unless it is the one who believes that they are in need of salvation, right? Who's going to pay attention to listen as someone is teaching the way of salvation unless we believe that we are actually in need of saving? But if I have no concept of saving, that I feel like there is nothing to save, that there is nothing wrong with me, then when someone comes to teach me about salvation, I'm not going to care. It's not, it's going to just bounce off of me. It's like, okay, this is nonsense. I don't even need to listen to this. Okay. And sadly, this is the state of the world, right? The state of the world is that the world does not realize that they are under the sentence of death. Maybe they realize that they are physically going to die, but actually even this scientists are trying to cure it so that there is no more physical death. But certainly from a spiritual level, the world does not see that there is that there is anything to fix, anything to cure. Everything is man-made. Everything is man-made solutions. You know, we're going to pass some laws. We're going to teach kids in school how they should behave. You know, like things on the level of humanity, right? Whereas the kind of solution to 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 the spiritual death that that Christ brings is something beyond the power of man, something beyond it, anything anyone could have done. Okay. So those who are mindful, we who are in the church, like in the book of St. John Climacus, the called the Ladder of Divine Ascent, it's these 30 steps, these 30 chapters. Each one is a step in a ladder, like reaching God. One of the steps is the remembrance of death, right, which can kind of seem like a morbid thing. This is actually one of the steps of salvation, is the remembrance of death. 
Who of us is going to care about sacrificing our, our time for God? Who of us is going to care about coming to church? Who is going to care about the sacraments? Unless we realize that we are in need. There is something we are in need. We are drowning. We are like drowning in the ocean. And we are looking for that one who can come and to pluck us out, who can rescue us from this. So he's saying we have the sentence of death in ourselves. And because of this sentence of death that we realize in ourselves, we know that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Ultimately, we have no power. Ultimately, we have no authority. Ultimately, we don't even have existence. Like my whole existence is wrapped up in the existence and the creative power of God. I have no existence of myself. I have nothing in myself that is that, that sustains my existence. You know, we think about it from the terms of, well, you know, I just have to eat and drink and I have shelter and those things sustain me. Those things provide for my existence. That's not really the case because God is the one who provides those things. God is the, 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 the active power that keeps me existing. That without him, I would simply cease to be, okay? We take this for granted because obviously since we are here, we are alive, we are existing, we don't know what it's like to not exist, okay? We should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. That even the forces of death that, that, that seek to cause us to cease to exist, the forces of death that seek to unmake us, to seek to destroy us, whether physically or spiritually, God is the one who raises from the dead. God is the one who conquered this death. That the one problem that exists for all humans, every single human has the one thing in common, and that is, or you could say two things, they were born and they will die. There is nothing else that absolutely every single person in the world has in common, except that we are born and that we will die. God solved this problem, solved this problem of death so that we no longer have to suffer with. Who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us in whom we trust that he will still deliver us, right? God is the one who raises from the dead, okay? And ultimately, this is a hope that we have, right? Who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us and in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. So you see, there's like the three tenses here. He has delivered us from death. He does deliver us from death and in whom we trust that he will still deliver us from death. So what do you think these three represent? What are, what are the three? Who did deliver us, who does deliver us, and who will deliver us? Yeah. I think there's a point that whenever we're partaking of the Eucharist, it's in the here and now. Still, something that was in a time and a moment in the past, the Christ was still partaking of it, and we have hope that it's still So definitely we can say that. We have partaken of the Eucharist in the past, which was a source of life. We do partake of it now in the present. We will continue to partake of it. Good. What else could it be? Yeah. Good. So he did deliver us on the cross. He does deliver us through the sacraments. And he will deliver us on the judgment day. And afterward, when the resurrection of the dead, right? Good. You can also say that deliverance of the past could also be related to our baptism, right? That, that, that in our baptism, we, we have salvation, right? And our salvation continues 
in the sacraments, in our repentance, in our way of life, in our faith in Christ, in, in, in the power of God working on us. And we believe that he will continue this in the future and that on the judgment day, he will save us from death and bring us into paradise, right? So, so in every way, we are sustained and supported by God, okay? It is not just uh, a momentary thing. It is a continual process of deliverance. This is why one of the reasons why we don't believe in the idea of the salvation in a moment, right? Because if it was salvation in a moment, then you would say we were delivered. We were the deliverance has happened, and now we are we are delivered. There is there is no this sense of continuity, right? In the in the Orthodox Church, salvation is not a time like a moment in time. It is a process. It is the process of salvation that it has a beginning, which is in our baptism. Okay. Ultimately, the beginning was Christ on the cross, but we benefit from it individually through our baptism. Okay. And then that process of salvation continues throughout our life as we are sanctified, as we are struggling against sin, as we partake of the sacraments, as we live a repentant life. Okay. And then ultimately in, in, the, in the future, our, the ultimate deliverance is when all of those promises that God has made are actually come to pass which is that we have passed from death into life, which is that we are now in eternity with God, right? All of this is part of deliverance and salvation. Here in this part, uh, St. Paul starts to speak about uh, seeking their prayers, right? Because he is suffering uh, of all these things that he's describing in his ministry. And so he's asking for the prayers of uh, the people of the Corinthians. So it says, you also helping together in prayer for us, that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. Okay, let me read it again. You also helping together in prayer for us, that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. Okay. So the church, okay, is, is as a church, we are called to pray for one another, okay? For, uh, for, for him, like the church of Corinth is, is, is called to pray for, for St. Paul, just as St. Paul prays for them. And in the midst of those sufferings, okay, we also should be able to give thanks to God and see the good in, in what God does, right? So, so it is through prayers that uh, thanks may be given, right? We are giving thanks to God for one, one another. We are receiving the prayers of one another. And then this is a gift that is granted to us, right? We are, we are granted the gift of the prayers of others. The prayers are offered on our behalf, our gifts and blessings, right? So when you pray for me, I am thankful for your prayer. I take this as, as a gift that you are giving me, a blessing that you are giving me because of this. And I'm thankful to God. I'm thankful to you because of the prayers that you give. And this is something very important in the church. Is the idea of the praying for one another and the praying for the leaders of the church. St. Paul is asking the people, even though he is an apostle, he is asking the people to pray for him. It is not just the case that St. Paul, because he is the apostle, he is the one who is the intercessor. He is the one who prays for all the people on behalf of the people. Yes, he does this. But also he is in need of the prayers of the people himself. This is why in the liturgy, in every liturgy, we are praying for the Pope, we are praying for our bishop, we're praying for the clergy, we're praying for the deacons, we're praying for the people, we're praying for everyone, right? Because 
we are all in need of one another's prayer to be protected from the evil one. For our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly toward you. Okay, so he's speaking about the testimony of our conscience is what? Like our conscience is not um, like, like, like it's clear. Uh, my conscience is clear. Why? That we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity. So what is this simplicity? He's saying our conscience is clear that we are simple, that we are living in simplicity. What is simplicity? What does it mean to be simple? So, so thinking about the heavenly things as opposed to the earthly things, and like not the material things, not thinking about the material things. That's what you mean. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So think about it from the perspective of what does the word simple mean? What is the opposite of simple? Complex. Complex. So what is the difference between something that is simple, just in a generic sense? What is the difference between something that is simple and something that is complex? Simplicity is easy, okay. What else? Not complicated, not complex. <laughs> what, is, what are the characteristics of something that is not complicated? Clear, yeah, it's clear. What else? So when used in the wrong way, right? When you say that someone is simple in, in, in a wrong way, it could mean someone's ignorant. But this is not what, what he's referring to here. So the word simple, like you can think something that is simple kind of like has one purpose. Or you think of the term like one. There's one, it's one thing. Something that's simple is one thing. Or something that's complicated is a bunch of different things together, right? Something that's complicated has a bunch of different uses and functions and purposes and buttons and dials and levers and ways you use it and how you hold it, what you do with it. It's complicated. It's hard to understand. Something that's simple is clear. So that's one use. You just do it. It's just easy to use one thing, right? So when you think about when you apply this term, like in the spiritual sense, that something is um, simple, in the spiritual way, meaning it is one. It is it is one, like we are one person, I am one person, and I have one goal, and I have one way of life, and I have one way of talking, and I have one way of thinking, and I have one, I'm one, I'm one person, as opposed to being what? A divided person, right? A divided person is a complicated person. A divided person is the person who is like, okay, who am I with? Let me decide how I'm going to talk, how I'm going to act, what am I going to say, what am I not going to say, what am I going to wear, what am I not going to wear? Why? Because I'm complicated. I'm complicated because there are so many variables that are determining my actions, that are determining my words, that are determining everything. I'm, it's complicated. It's a complicated life. Whereas a simple person, I'm just who I am. I'm just one. And my oneness is aiming at like what you guys were saying. Like I'm not focusing on the material world. I'm not focusing on the earthly things. I'm focusing, focusing on the heavenly things. And I'm focusing on the heavenly things everywhere at every moment, everywhere, no matter where I am, whether I'm alone, whether I'm at church, 
whether I'm at work, whether I'm at school, whether I'm with this group of friends or this other group of friends, at any point in time, I'm one. My, my, my intentions are one, my desires are one, my actions are one, my thoughts are one, my words are one. So that I never have to worry about being a divided person. I never have to think that I have I'm more than one thing pulling at me. You know, and Christ says, you cannot love both God and man. You cannot be divided. You cannot succeed in the Christian life as being divided. I cannot have part of my heart is attached to this thing over here, right? Because that attachment is like an anchor that prevents my spirit from being united with God. I have to be simple. And this is what his boasting is. He says, for our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom. Fleshly wisdom is complicated. Fleshly wisdom is complicated. It is full of so many different things, right? That in order for us to be successful in the world and the way that we have to act and the things that we have to do, you know, the world is a complicated place. The things that we have to do is complicated, okay? But by the grace of God and more abundantly towards you, okay? Uh, St. John Chrysostom, he says, those who live uprightly will see the power of God work in their life and will be consoled. Those of us who are, are living uprightly, who are living simply, who are trying to live for God and God alone, these people will see the work of God. You know, we ask sometimes, why is it that some people, they seem to have an experience of God all the time and they see God working and they experience God in their life and they feel that when their prayer, their prayers are answered. Maybe, maybe these people are so minded of God only and they're not distracted by the world at all. This is something that they, you know, the only, is their, their only audience is God. The only people they care about is God. The only judgment they care about is God's judgment. So they are one, they are simple. And for this, they experience God's work in their life and they are consoled by God. That even though they suffer in the world and there is problems in the world, but it is through these problems they still see God, they still experience God, they still feel comforted by God, even when all these things are happening around them, okay? One of the things that makes us complex, okay, that stifles this experience of God is unrepented sin, okay? Unrepentant sin, that, that I am building up and I'm amassing inside of myself sins that I'm hiding, Right, that I'm trying to live with, that I'm trying to justify, that I'm trying to reconcile into my otherwise life that is, you know, supposed to be a godly one. But I have this area, this dark area of my life where I have not given it to God, I have not exposed it in confession, and I continue to pursue it because I feel like I can't get away from it. It's something that I want. I want all the others too. I want to be able to go to church and I want to be able to pray and I want to be able to have the blessings of God and I want God to be with me, but I can't get rid of this thing over here. This thing I want it also, right? This is complicated. Another way that, another thing that stifles our experience of God is doing the minimum, doing the minimum, right? What is it that Christ wants me to do? He wants me to do one, two, three, four, five, six. Okay. How can I do the minimum of these and still get the benefit? You know, like like the mentality of a student who says, you know what, all I need is a 70, you know, because it's a passing grade. I'm going to pass. I'm not going to fail. All I need is a 70. I don't need to get a 75 or an 80 or an 85 or 90 or, or I don't need to try for that. Why would I put extra effort 
to try to do my best when the minimum is sufficient, right? I don't want to call out anybody, but I always like remember when I was in school, like in college, like whenever there'd be a class uh, where they would be like, you know, maybe four or five tests during the semester. And they would say, well, we're going to drop the lowest test grade. Okay. So some students, very confident, you know, once they feel like their test grades are good enough, they just don't show up for a test, you know, and they just get a zero on it. And that's fine because, you know, it's going to drop the zero, right? In my mind, I always looked at that. And I'm like, well, but what if you do better on that test to break up your overall average of your test even higher instead of sticking with whatever average you had before, right? It's a different way of thinking. And one way of thinking is like, okay, I've done enough and it's good enough and I don't need to make it better. So I'm just going to stop, right? Another way of thinking is, no, I have an opportunity to do even better. So I'm going to take the opportunity, right? And, and you know, when you apply it in, in school, you know, it's one thing. I mean, life goes on, you know, you're, it's not going to be the end of the world for you. But when you apply it in the spiritual life, this is really when we begin to feel frustrated by our spiritual life. Because maybe I feel like I'm putting effort, but I'm not seeing any reward. I'm not seeing any results. I'm not seeing anything happen, maybe because I'm doing the minimum. I'm doing the absolute lowest amount I can just to say that I did it, okay? Without trying to go deeper, without trying to invest more of my time and so on. For we are not writing any other things to you than what you read or understand. Now I trust you will understand even to the end, as also you have understood us in part, that we are your boast as you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. Okay, so he is, um, when, he see, when he says we are not writing any other things to you than what you read or, un or understand, this is referring to the first epistle, right? So as he wrote to them before, and as he has explained to them the truth before, so also he is explaining the truth now, and he is writing to them the truth now. They understand him in part, but not fully, right? The depth of his inner life, the, his calling to serve, the amount of love that he has for them, um, the amount that he boasts of them. You know, St. Paul is always struggling to, to like explain to them how much he cares about them, how much he wants to protect them how much he's worried about them, how much the thoughts of them occupy his mind all the time. Children don't understand how much their parents love them. They just don't, they don't comprehend it. They don't comprehend how much their parents love them. They don't comprehend the idea that a parent would die for their child. They don't comprehend that, right? The, the Corinthians didn't comprehend or understand that everything that St. Paul is doing, even the things that look like rebuke and consequences and harsh speaking and all of that stuff, was not because of anger toward them or hatred toward them or, or anything other than just such a depth of love and concern for them that he wanted to, to warn them not to walk down the wrong path, not to do the wrong thing, not to fall away. So he feels compelled whenever he even he has to say something to them that is harsh, that is difficult for them to hear because it is for their good. And he says, what well, we are your boast as you also are ours. Like he's saying, we also want to be appreciated by you. We want you to boast in us and we boast in you. Like we are, have a relationship together. You know, we have a relationship together. And, and, and this is what makes, um, you know, this is what makes our relationship strong because we boast of one another and we love one another. And now here he's going to speak about his desire to see them. So he says, and in this confidence, I intended to come to you before that you might have a second benefit. So in 1 Corinthians, 
St. Paul had promised to visit them soon, right? So he intended to come to them um, that they might have a greater benefit, right? Uh, than just receiving the letter. So he had received the letter, 1 Corinthians, and then he had promised that he would follow that up with a visit so that he, they would see him in person, okay? So he's now gonna address the fact that he hasn't actually gone to, to, to visit them. To pass by way of you to Macedonia, so, okay. And in this confidence, I intended to come to you before that you might have a second benefit. To pass by way of you to Macedonia, to come again from Macedonia to you and be helped by you on my way to Judea. So his original plan was to come to them after a stop in Macedonia, okay? He was gonna stop there and then come visit them. Therefore, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly? Or the things I plan, do I plan according to the flesh that there, that uh, with me there should be yes, yes, and no, no? But what does that mean? when he said, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly? What, what, what does that part mean? Remember, he didn't fulfill what he told them, right? He told them he was going to come visit, but he didn't visit. Yeah, like he's saying, when I made you the promise of coming to visit you, did I do it just like in a, in a very non-committal way? Like I was just talking, like I wasn't actually serious. You know, he's saying, when I was planning this, did I, did I say it kind of in a non-serious way that I was just kind of saying something just to, to give you lip service, to make you feel good that I'm planning to visit, but I really had no intention to visit? Or the things I plan, do I plan according to the flesh, meaning am I not following through with my commitments, that there should be yes, yes, and no, no? What does that part mean, that there should be yes, yes, and no, no? Well, he had a reason why he couldn't go. It wasn't because he made the promise and then he changed his mind or, or that it was out of his weakness. There was something that prevented him from going, okay? But when he says here that there should be yes, yes, and no, no, what he's saying is like, it's kind of like what we do, you know? Like there's a different kind of yes and there's a different kind of no. Like the yes of inshallah, yes, is the yes that really doesn't mean yes, you know? And the... Uh, the no that, you know, you, you, you can tell when someone you're talking to is saying yes and they mean no, right? So what he's saying here is, do I have different types of yes and do I have different types of no? Can you not just trust me at face value when I tell you, yes, I plan to do something or no, I do not plan to do it? This was because he was being accused that he was not trustworthy because when he promised them and told them that I'm going to come and visit you and then he, he fell short, he didn't do it. The people are saying, oh, you weren't even serious about coming to visit us. Or no, well, we can't trust you. And the, the issue here is not that they can't trust him on this point. The issue is that if they find that he is not trustworthy, then that means that they would not trust anything that he says, including all of the teachings that he is teaching them, which is for their salvation. So he wants, any time that St. Paul is like um, boasting of himself, or defending himself, or trying to show that he is good in some way, it's not because he, he cares that they think that he's good. It's because they want him, they, 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 he wants them to see them 
as an apostolic authority. He is an apostolic authority. He is trustworthy. What he says is true. His words and the words of the Lord Jesus are the same. So that whatever he says, they will believe and they will listen. Again, because they are his boast. They are the ones that he loves. He wants them to succeed. He wants them to have salvation. So he's defending himself and the reason why he did not go. It isn't because he was, he was making promises lightly without thinking through what it is that he was planning, right? Is that he was prevented from going. Okay, what does St. John Chrysostom say about this? He says, as far as the carnal man is concerned, who is attracted to the present world and is completely under its spell, he being outside the spiritual influence, it's free to go wherever he intends to go and to do whatever he wishes to do. The spiritual man, on the other hand, is not free to do what he wishes to do, but is completely under the authority of the Holy Spirit. So was Paul. He could not go to visit Corinth because it was not according to the will of the Spirit. So he's saying that even though St. Paul desired to go and to visit them and intended to go and visit them, but there was something unforeseen that prevented him from going to visit them and that it is St. Paul is not 100% completely free in his own decisions and his own service and ministry because his ministry is determined by the Holy Spirit. It's like if I were to tell you, uh, I will see you to church on Sunday and I'm gonna be here on church. But then for whatever reason, Sayyidina calls me, he says, I need you to travel to such and such city and pray liturgy at this other place because the priest over there is not available for some reason, right? So it is not that I took lightly the idea that um, I'm going to see you on Sunday or that you're supposed to confess with me on Sunday and I had to cancel that appointment. It is something that is out of my control, right? This is what St. Paul is saying here. But as God is faithful, your word, uh, sorry, our word to you was not yes and no, meaning like he means that he is straightforward in his talk, right? And he's not changing his mind from yes to no. Um, for the son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Sylvanus, and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. Okay, in him was yes. How can we understand this, right? Like, the word of God is the divine truth. And with him, everything is yes. Meaning, even if the plans of man, the best plans of man, the best and, and conscientious plans of man, don't happen it is because god did not allow them to for some good purpose so in the end we can say that everything is yes everything is yes like we look at things in terms of the good things that happened to me and the bad things that happened to me but in christ jesus we can say everything that happened to me according to the will of god is good and that's why we thank god for everything we thank god even for the things that happened to me that I didn't want, that I prefer didn't happen. We are still thankful to God because in him, everything is yes. Everything that he does is yes. Everything that he does is good, okay? And, and it doesn't mean that uh, because he was not able to fulfill uh, this promise of going to visit them, that somehow it means that everything else that he said is wrong because the promise of going to visit them was his own personal promise. Like my own personal promise is to say, I will see you on Sunday. But that is not the voice of the Holy Spirit talking. That's me talking. That's my mind talking, right? But the, the, the messages that St. Paul was preaching to the people 
were not his own messages, the messages of salvation, were not his own messages in order for there to be a yes and a no, in order for there to be, you know what, sometimes these things will happen and sometimes they will not happen. Because what in, 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 in Jesus Christ was yes. Everything that the Lord says must happen, right? There is no confusion. There is no maybe. There is no unforeseen incidents that's going to prevent Christ from saving us. Right? Everything that is coming from the Lord is a direct message from God. In him is yes. Everything he says will happen. Right? But if it is a message that is coming from a person, right? Obviously, we don't know the future and we can't control it. Right? So we speak according to what we know and what we intend. But that doesn't mean that everything that we say will actually happen. Right? So St. Paul is trying to make a distinction between what is truly his own desires and his own hopes and his own intentions versus what is 100% without doubt coming from God to them so that they wouldn't say that, well, because this didn't happen, that means that, you know, he's not trustworthy and everything else that he says might also not be trustworthy. For all the promises of God in him are yes and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us, right? All the promises of God are yes. Everything God promises is, is, is going to happen, as he said. Now, he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee, right? You see here like the working of the Trinity, right? It says, he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God. So the Father is the one who gives us divine promises. The Son is, is realized and fulfills those promises in us. The Holy Spirit gives us like the seal, the seal for sanctification, salvation, the establishment of the church, everything that is accomplished in us through the work of the Spirit, right, as a guarantee. This is the seal of the Spirit, right? God is the one who confirms and establishes all these works in us. Moreover, I call God as witness against my soul that to spare you, I came no more to Corinth. Okay, so now he's, he's going on. He's in, in the same in uh, the same argument of what are the reasons that I didn't come. He's saying, to spare you, I came no more to Corinth. Okay, why do you think that is? There wasn't so much persecution there uh, because Again, like most of the persecution was toward like the Jewish Christians, right? And here, these are the Gentile Christians. There wasn't there wasn't so much persecution here. Very good, right? Like he he's saying, you know, actually, if you read, um, we're we're about to look at it in the next chapter, but the first verses in the next chapter, he says, but I determined this within myself that I would not come again to you in sorrow. For if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad, but the one who is made sorrowful by me? Meaning I, I didn't want to come again in person and see all the things that I rebuked you for in my letter with my own eyes and then be forced to rebuke you again. Right? St. Paul wants to have a good relationship with the Corinthians, obviously, right? And this is for their own good as well, that they have a good relationship with him. 
And he just got finished writing a letter to them that pointed out and called out all these wrong things that they were doing, okay? He feels obligated to when, when he comes to a place that he, and he sees something wrong happening, that he has to correct that thing, right? Because he is the source of authority, right? He is the source of authority. If, if wrong things are happening around him and he doesn't say anything, and he doesn't do anything, then it'll be implicitly interpreted as though he approves of them because he did not try to stop them, right? So St. Paul wanted to wait for two reasons. One is he didn't want to go and just kind of have to give them more disciplinary talk again and tell them this is wrong, what you're doing, so and so on. The other thing is he wants to give them time in order for them to correct their actions. Because once you rebuke someone for something, you have to give them time in order for them to change. So when they change, then when you come, you can, you can praise them for what it is that they did instead of rebuking them for what they did not do, okay? So he wants to give them time to reform, lest when he comes and visits them, he finds the same problems again. This is why you'll find that in this, in this epistle, in 2 Corinthians, uh, the tone is much lighter than the first time around, okay? Because his goal here is not to just rehash everything uh, that, that happened the first time, but he's wanting to like re, um, re, reconfirm the love that he has for them. Lest they think that after his first epistle, which was harsh and had a lot of rebukes, that somehow he doesn't love them anymore or that he's disappointed in them. Not that we have dominion over your faith, but our fellow workers for your joy, for by faith you stand. So he's saying what? He is not seeking to be overbearing on them, but he is a fellow worker with them, okay? Not that we have dominion over your faith, but our fellow workers for your joy. He's not wanting to use his apostolic authority to force people to do something. He wants to exhort and convince and make them to understand so that they, by their own will, choose to do what is right, right? And this is important. You know, sometimes in a, in a position of authority, we have the authority to force people to do something. That should be the last resort. Right? The last resort should be to force people against their will to do something that they don't want to do. The, 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 the approach should instead be, I want to explain to you why this is important. I want to motivate you to do it. I want you to feel the need of it yourself so that when you see it, you are motivated and you have zeal to do the right thing on your own. I am not saying that I'm coming to have dominion, to have power and control over you, to rule you like with an iron hand, right? But I am a fellow worker. I am coming with you to serve you and you to serve me. For by faith you stand. Any questions about that chapter? Okay. Chapter two. Here in this first part in chapter two, um, St. Paul is explaining to them how, uh, how much the Corinthians are a source of joy to him. So he says, but I determined this. This is the verse we just read when um, I was mentioning before. So he says, but I determined this within myself that I would not come again to you in sorrow. Okay. And so we said the reason was because he didn't want to go and rebuke them again for the same things that he just did. Okay. Or that, that, that he just told them to stop doing. Um, this also kind of gives us some insight into God because God's joy does not come in rebuking us. God's joy does not come in, in constantly telling us to do to do something or not to do something, right? 
um, God actually, he, he wants to find reasons to praise us. That's why he says what? That even the person who gives an apostle a, a, a cup of cold water will be praised. Like that will be remembered by God. Like some, the most insignificant good and kind act that we do as human beings, God will remember. And he wants us, he wants to praise us and reward us for that. God is not seeking to find something by which to condemn. He's looking to find that by which he will reward. Okay. And, and, and here St. Paul doesn't want to condemn. He does, he, this isn't his desire to do so. He feels obligated because of his authority, because of who he is, that he must call out certain behaviors and certain things and say, this is wrong. But this doesn't give him delight. This doesn't give him joy to do that. He wants instead to find things to praise. For if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad but the one who is made sorrowful by me? Pretty clear, huh? What does that mean? What, what does that mean? If I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad but the one who is made sorrowful by me? You have to read it like 10 times before it makes sense. Like there's like the, the, the things that were like become sorrowful by control, that's like, and there's like hope that they can so he's speaking about he's okay so i think he's speaking about repentance right well so what is if i make you sorrowful so what is that referring to yeah so if i'm if, let's say if i'm saint paul so if i'm hard on you then you're going to be sorrowful okay um but when you are sorrowful then how will i be be then I'll be sad for you. Oh. I don't want you to be sorrowful, right? But so when it says, if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad? You are the ones that make me glad. Who is he then who is sorrowful? The one who is made sorrowful by me. So I'm making you sorrowful, but I want you to be glad. And you are my source of gladness. So I don't want you to be sorrowful. Because I will also be sad with you, right? Again, he's showing his... Uh, like he's showing his true, like fatherly, pastoral care toward them. You know, he is not just a, a teacher who is demanding what is right. He is sharing in. He's sharing in the sorrow of them. You know, like when we, you know, parents when they discipline their children and they see their children are sad. Parents are sad for them. They're not just standing there you know, like so happy that they have made their children sad because they know that then they're going to stop, you know, doing whatever wrong act, you know. And, and this is, uh, this, there, the evidence for this is the incarnation, you know. Like if, if God, God could have stayed in heaven and given all of the commands and the commandments and the prophets and everything, right, and just explain to people what is right, but Christ he, he did not, like, God did not want to uh, do that because he was sorrowful for all that was happening with the people and it was not working and the people were not listening. He allowed himself to share in the sorrow. He allowed himself to partake of the sorrow, right? And so here as St. Paul is sorrowful with them because of their sin, God is also sorrowful with us, right? Sorrowful with us when we sin, right? And, and sorrowful when we are sorrowful. God's joy comes from our joy, okay?
But that doesn't mean that he will not make us sorrowful if he believes that it will lead to ultimate joy, right? God rebukes us because he believes that in the end, there will be a long-term gladness. There will be a long-term joy. St. Paul believes that even if I make you sorrowful in the moment, but there is a long-term joy that will happen because you will learn the right principles and how to live, okay? St. Basil the Great, he says, it is so shameful to see how the physically ill would readily put great trust in their physicians, even if it comes to cut, burn, or cause severe pain, or to be given bitter medications, and how they consider these things as good deeds on his part. While we do not adopt the same tendency toward our spiritual physicians, when they work on our salvation through firm chastisement. What does that mean? Over your head. Is that what you mean? No. Is it like disrespect? Very hard. No, I think I think it's very concise, and what he's saying is amazing. That's why it's like very high. Oh, very spiritually high. Yeah. So what is he saying? Did everyone pick up on on that? He's saying like if we trust the people who are like the physicians of our body, why would we trust the physicians of our spirit? Good. If if we go if we trust the doctor who is going to inject us with a needle that hurts me and gives me pain because we trust that what he is doing is actually for my good. Why is it that we do not trust the physician of our souls, the great physician who might use a needle in order to inject me with some lesson that I need to learn that is also for my greater spiritual well-being, right? That's what St. Basil is saying. So, so this is the parallel here. And that when we are made to sorrow, because our spiritual leaders uh, see that we are in need of some chastisement, right? Why do why would we reject it, right? Why don't we look at it the way that we look at um, our, our physicians, our the physicians of our body? And I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came, I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. Okay, what does this mean? Yeah, he wants them to be happy, right? So that when I, when I, less when I came, I should find that you are still in sorrow, okay? Because what? Uh, you are the source of my joy, and I am the source of your joy. You know, it, like, if anyone's ever experienced to where, like, you know, the bishop is visiting the church and he's unhappy about something that has happened and he makes a comment about it, okay? It's like, makes everybody upset. Like, I don't mean upset at him. I mean, feel sorrow that something is happening that shouldn't be and that we made our father sad, right? We don't want to make our father sad. The same is here. Like, in order for there to be mutual joy, the father has to be joyful and comfortable with what his children are doing. And the children have to be respecting of the father and wanting to please him right? And wanting to do what is right. But if you have either one, if you have the congregation to not care about what the father said thinks, or to think that the father is overbearing, then it breaks the relationship. So it continues in verse four. So it says, for out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, 
not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. So he's, he's again, he's, he's, he's rooting the idea that he is rebuking them in his love. I'm, love. I'm rebuking you because I love you, not because I hate you. But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man. So who is he talking about now? Who is this man he's talking about? If anyone, this is in verse 5, if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. This punishment, was, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man. Who is he referring to? One of you had mentioned it earlier when we were talking about recapping 1 Corinthians. Yes, the, the, the man who had a relationship with his, uh, his stepmother, okay? So, so what had happened at the time is that, uh, what had happened at the time is that, uh, it's under there, under that chair, uh, is that when St. Paul found out about this, he was not only upset because this had happened, he was upset because the church did nothing to rebuke the man. You know, they were they 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 didn't give him any consequences living in this way. There's nothing going on to prevent this from happening, as though the church had completely accepted it. So um uh so he had St. Paul had taken some extreme action and he had actually uh excommunicated the man at the time and even used the language deliver him to, to Satan, right? Deliver him to Satan, meaning that he will be put out of the church, and having now been put out of the church. He would learn to uh, he he would learn like his mistake and repent. That was the purpose. That was the design. Is for him to repent, not him to be rejected, but him to repent. So now he is speaking about this situation with this man. Okay, so he's saying, if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent. So he's saying this man, the sin that he committed, was not just like uh, grieving me about what happened, uh, but, he, but he grieved the whole congregation, okay? Uh, so, so then he goes on and to say, this punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man. Why, why is he saying that this punishment was inflicted by the majority? Yeah, because what is it that St. Paul asked them to do? He asked the congregation to put out the man, right? He asked, he told the congregation, put this man away from you, okay, uh, because of what he has done. So they listened to him. They, they obliged and they did what he asked them to do. Yeah, so sorry. So he says, this punishment was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man because it was inflicted by everybody. Everybody had decided then at that time in agreement to do this and this is important because the idea of the consequence that's given by the church is the most effective when everybody agrees and really any decision that's made like if the bishop makes a decision and let's say that the, there's people some people agree with the decision and some people disagree with the decision if this results in 
uh, factions being made and people talking and making groups and this person fighting this person, this person fighting that person, it can cause a big division in the church. But if everybody says, you know what, even if we are not 100% on board with this decision, okay, we're going to support it and we're all going to do the same thing together. This, this brings unity. And in this case, it brought about the repentance of this man because everybody treated him the same, right? He was put out of the church and now having this happen to him, he was now repentant and ready to return. Yeah. One of the reasons we vote on clergy, which is, well, to make, well, yeah, because the whole congregation has to approve because otherwise immediately there's going to be problems from day one, right? Yeah. Um, so one thing to be said also about this and, you know, this man who was living in sin, he cared about repentance. He cared about doing the right thing. So when he was put out of the church, it affected him so much that he returned. Okay. You know, in the early church, the idea of the church was so important in the lives of people that people would be willing to do anything to stay in the church. The church would actually give out very severe consequences for certain sins in order to prevent people from falling into those sins and people would endure them. You know, there was only one church. This was the church. The alternative was paganism. Okay. So for instance, at the time, the church would give like uh and this is in the canons, you know, if somebody uh, commits an abortion, then they would have to not take communion for 14 years. There would be a special place in the church called the area of the mourners and the area of the kneelers. These are people that were given consequence by the church to say, you go and stand on the side. You don't stand with the rest of the congregation. You go stand on the side and, and, and some people will just stand the whole time. Some people kneel the whole time. And they have this, the, the mourners like, like always like mourning for their sins. And they're like labeled like, hey, you go, you know, this is you go over here. Again, this was not intended to be like, you know, you know, discriminating against those people or somehow mistreating those people. This was the means of restoration, right? This was the means of restoration. Whenever the, there is anyone who is excommunicated, this is a means of restoration. Sadly, in our day, you know, what happens is, is if, if you try to give somebody, I'm not saying you're gonna tell them to stand in the corner or stand anything, but if you try to tell people, okay, you cannot serve for a certain period of time, or you cannot take communion for a certain period of time, or you cannot do this. A lot of times what happens is people might say, okay, well, I'm leaving. You know, I'm just not gonna come back. You know, if you treat me like this, I'm not going to come back. Well, it says something about us in that how lightly we take the church. You know, do we see the church as being this life-giving, living body of Christ that without it, I have no life? You know, because if I saw it like that, then I, would, I, I couldn't afford to not be in the church. Like not being in the church is like my own destruction. I would be willing to accept anything. Right. And and out of a fear of not being excommunicated or not being or being told not to, I would be extra careful the way that I act and the things that I allow myself to do. Right. Just kind of like you have laws, you know, like there are certain laws against murder. And if you murder, there are certain consequences that are really bad. So one of the motivations that someone might have not to murder is because they know if I do, there's really bad consequences. I'm not trying to say that that should be the primary reason why someone does good. But it's a reason, it's something that's there. And one of the things that the church used to help make sure that everybody was, was, was doing the right thing to help keep people from sin, 
right? Um, nowadays, people will just say, well, I'm just going to go to the church down the road, like, you know, some other church, like non-Orthodox church even, perhaps. So um, for that reason, you know, even though there are, uh, those canons are still on the books, you know, but they're not applied because in practice in our modern day, they wouldn't work. But just to say that this was very effective because the whole church was in on it. The whole church agreed to it. The whole church did it as one. Um, and so when the man returned, everyone could rejoice together that he had returned. So that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. Now look now what St. Paul is saying. He's saying, you know, all together as one, we told him to go out for his own good, for his repentance. And now that he has repented, all together as one, we are to what? Forgive him, comfort him, lest what he be swallowed up with sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. You know, again, sadly, in our day, you know, when someone who has been caught in some kind of a sin, that, we, that he has a reputation of having done something. Um, and then this person maybe leaves the church for a time, for years, and then chooses to come back again. What do we say about such a person? You know, well, how is this person treated? Are they treated like, yes, we are so happy and, and comfortable for you to come back and we are forgiving you for whatever you did and come and join the church again? Or do people talk about them and point at them and they treat them differently? They maybe doubt, how, how could this person who has done this and this, you know, come back to the church and so on? This is totally wrong from us. You know, this is totally wrong. This is this is the spirit of the world. This is not the spirit of God. This is not the spirit of the church. This is not the, the body of Christ talking, right? When we say that, when we do that. This is this is completely 100% the spirit of the world who is judgmental, who doesn't give any second chances, who has a record of wrongs, who never forgives, who is very uh, blind to its own sin, right? Who are we to condemn someone, you know, regardless of what sin they committed after they have repented? Who are we to condemn that person? You know, the perfect example of this is the parable of the, 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 the servant, the, unfor the parable of the unforgiving servant. Okay? In this parable, you have a king who had a servant, and this servant owed the king 10,000 talents, uh, an amount that can never be repaid, even after a lifetime of work. You know, that's how much debt he had and 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 the servant when he went to the master he told them forgive me i can't pay and so the master out of his mercy he forgave the debt completely okay but then that servant went and found a fellow servant and and who owed him just a little bit of money right and he said please give me more time because i can't pay and instead of being merciful to him and instead of forgiving his debt he threw him in prison he told him no you're going to pay me everything and so when the master heard about this, he condemned that servant for doing that. And he also threw him in prison and said, you're never going to get out of prison until you pay every last penny. We are the same. When we condemn other people, while at the same time, we are enjoying the benefits of mercy from being in the church. Who, who are we to like place blame and point to others and, and condemn them after they have repented of their sin? When we are, are the ones enjoying all of the benefits of forgiveness and the benefits of mercy here in the church um, from God, right? This is not a place of condemnation, not for those who are repentant. It is a place of rebuke. It is a place of pointing out what is right and what is wrong and calling people to righteousness. 
But to those people who are repenting, to those people who, who, who regret their sin, to those people who are confessing their sin, this is not a place of condemnation and judgment, right? This is not the church. The church is a place of restoration. It's a hospital, yes. Excommunication is designed to be like a, like, like a consequence that you give somebody for a time with the purpose of, of bringing them to repentance. Because excommunication is, is like, because you have committed a such and such a sin that was so difficult, right? We want you to repent. So we will put you out of the church. And then when you realize how bad this is, the, the thing that you did, and you want to come back, you come back to repent and your excommunication is lifted, right? There are people in the church that have been excommunicated. And, 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 and in, in modern times, we don't necessarily excommunicate. I mean, there are people who are excommunicated, yes, but um, what happens more often is it's not that someone's excommunicated, it's that they were just, they're just told you cannot take communion for a specific amount of time. And that's to bring to mind the seriousness of the sin. That's to help a person not to fall into that sin again. That's to help create the spirit of repentance inside a person who might otherwise be taking it lightly, right? Like that was what was happening in Corinth. The whole congregation and the man who was committing the sin was taking it lightly. St. Paul saw this. He says, we can't just accept this. We can't accept sin. We can't accept the normalization of sin, right? We can, we can, we can accept the person who has sinned and repented. We can accept the person with weakness. We can accept the person who has spiritual struggle and they're struggling with sin, yes. But we cannot accept the normalization of sin as though sin is okay to do without any, without any attention, without addressing it, you know? Does that make sense? No. Yes. Right, right. Like forgiveness doesn't mean that you don't still have to suffer the consequence of your decision. Right? There's still a consequence. There's a natural consequence, right, that happens of your decision. But when it's a consequence that's imposed by the church, let's say the church says to someone, you have to go one year without taking communion. Okay. Depending on the reaction of that person, if that person accepts this with humility, if that person, you know, does all that they can and accepts responsibility in this, very often the sentence is shortened to be something shorter because the work, the, the thing that we were trying to, to produce in that person, which was a sincere repentance, is already attained very quickly, right? So you don't necessarily have to wait the whole, the whole time, right? But this is up to each father of how he wants to do it. But, um, but the, aim is, the aim is not punishment. The aim is restoration. And that's exactly here what happened with this man. Okay. You can stop here. Uh, we're out of time. Yes. Uh, and, uh, and continue here for the next time. Does anyone have any final questions or comments before we conclude? Okay. Glory be to God forever. Amen. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, Lord, for this day. We ask, O oh God, for your blessing in all things and to teach us, O Lord, the important lessons that we can learn from your scripture. We ask, O oh God, that you teach us the spirit of forgiveness and kindness and mercy to others, just as you are merciful to us. 
We ask, O oh God, that you, you teach us, O oh Lord, a spirit of love and pastoral care that St. Paul has for the church, and to see those, O oh Lord, who are around us in need, that we can serve them and we can show them love and attention as they need. We ask, O oh God, that, that you would fill us with your grace, that you would teach us your way, and to keep our minds to be simple, that we would focus on you and nothing else, and realize that you are the one thing needed, and there is nothing else, O oh Lord, that is comparable to you that we should seek after. Teach us your ways, O oh God, grant us your peace, and fill us with joy, and give us mercy, O Lord, just as we receive mercy from you. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, here is as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not to temptation, deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, the communion and the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace, the peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen.